This is the Anything But Quiet Time podcast. We are Rochelle and Carter, and I'd like to start off this podcast with Mm -hmm. the dish towel set that I saw. What'd you see? The dish towel set red. And I think dish towels are becoming a lot like men's socks. Okay. They're very ostentatious. Yeah, you make a statement. Yeah, maybe you wear them, maybe you don't. Yeah, that's true. Maybe you just buy them for dad, but they've got cartoons on them or something. There are dish towels we use, and there are dish towels that just hang there. Yes. And now my son tries to grab and pull down. He's one year old, so he pulls them down and plays with them. Statement towels, maybe they're used to be instruments of drying the dish. Or your body. I don't know. There's the fancy towels. You never touch those. But the dish towels I'm talking about are the ones with quotes. And this one said, wash your hands and say your prayers because Jesus and germs are everywhere. Factual. It is. It is factual. It is factual. It's the the corniest set of towels I've ever seen. But at the same time, it's like, it's quite profound if you think of the enemy as the germ trying to be everywhere. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's a good point. He's not everywhere. He's not, you know, omnipresent. But. He tries to be. Those towels are not sold anywhere outside right. the Bible Belt. You would never see those towels in Seattle or New York. <laughs> Honestly, you just made me think about also the enemy is probably jealous of germs. If you think about it. Because they can be more everywhere than he can? Probably. It's interesting. And I want him to be jealous. I don't want to give him any glory. Come on. Um, so this is a, a, no glory. A, a, a podcast where we talk about what we're going through spiritually. And <laughs> yes, um, I'm sorry. I'm laughing. It's like, yes. After and that. Um, after the dish towel talk. Thank you for your time. And we understand that you have to go now. <laughs> um, no, we get a chance. We have a lot of fun, but we get a chance to, um, to to talk about this. And I do want to say, if you ever want to leave a review, we will give you a shout out. Why do you always tell them about this after we say something silly? Thank you for putting up with this is my point. Uh, the username Take It Two says, uh, Rochelle and Carter, you two do a great job with the podcast. Uh, easy to listen to, relatable and fun, and oh. see fun and great truths and stories from the Bible. I love y'all. Well, we love you. That's so nice. Thank you so much. And, wait, five, five stars. App? Five stars. Wait, Cash App. Well, that what? was her handle, right? No, Take It Two was the. Where did you get Cash App from? Like that? she's asking us to cash her some. Oh, for the for the nice review. Yeah, for the nice review, I'm See, gonna require twenty bucks. See, if it didn't land the first time, it was yeah. a terrible joke. <laughs> terrible. Um, <laughs> Thank you for your sweet comments. That was very nice. Okay, so here is a statement, a maybe a bit of a shocking statement for what I have this week. Oh, not a shocking statement. Come on. The embarrassing parts of the gospel okay. are a good thing. So the fact that you think there there are embarrassing parts of the gospel. I know there are embarrassing parts of the gospel. The part that I think you want to be shocking is that those embarrassing parts are a good thing is shocking. But the fact that you think there are embarrassing parts, that's a shocker. Now, what do you think that I'm I would be talking about? You think that I'm embarrassed about something. Are you embarrassed about something? I'm embarrassed about nothing. Well, nothing from the Bible. I'm sometimes embarrassed by Christian culture. <laughs> And the the t-shirts that we come up with. Just wait your turn, Or the dish towels. Uh, A couple decades down the road when you think you're on fire and people are like, no. That's fine. That's fine. Um, But they'll be embarrassed because of me, not the Bible. (laughs) No, there's embarrassing things within the Gospels themselves that I am actually very thankful for and I think we all should be. Somebody brought this up at Sunday school. Um, One one, uh, partiality of this truth and that it goes along with the apologetics, the defending of the faith that Christianity is true. Mm-hmm. And it's the fact that there are incredibly embarrassing parts 
because of the culture and because of the choices made by the disciples that actually help prove that what is written in the New Testament is true. Oh, like when Peter denied Jesus three times. That, we'll start with that one. Okay. If Christianity is made up and Peter is a, a major influence because these were written in the first century, so not too long after Jesus ascended back to heaven, then Peter is a major influence of this and mm-hmm. would have been making it up. It would, is the accusation. Well, he wouldn't write an embarrassing story about himself yeah. in a made-up story. And we know what you're thinking. Well, I, I mean, maybe it would. Well, but check your last mm-hmm. social media post. Did you ever shine yourself in a negative light? Yeah. And perhaps you did, but for a, a purpose. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I, yeah, I think that's... Well, I, I've thought this before. Uh, like, why would anybody put themselves in a place where they say Mary Magdalene who is a woman heard from Jesus right there at the tomb instead of a guy. Cause that would have been, that is a whole other part that I will about to get into. Cause that's what was presented at Sunday school. Okay. Okay. And so that is it. You you're right on it, Rochelle. That's exactly right. So let me tell, let me break it down like this. And just the Peter part of it. If I tell you, we haven't met. If I tell you a story that, Pats myself on the back. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm actually uh, the chief executive officer with a company that I started, and uh, blah blah blah. And also, I've uh, I, I know um, uh, I know Liza Minnelli, <laughs> and uh, we go way back. <laughs> and blah 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 blah. You're probably going to question a little bit. Yeah. Am I stretching the truth in the very the least? Authenticity. But if I tell you an embarrassing story about myself. Uh huh. Why would I do that unless it's true? Now, not self-deprecating in the way that where you're just doing it to like, like a, what's it called? False hum- uh, humility. False. Yeah. Not false humility. Oh, not good I mean, a story where I embarrass myself. And t- I'll tell you one. I'll tell you what. You love this one, Rochelle. You know this story. I am uh, making announcements at a vacation Bible school one time and I need a volunteer for a little game and a little girl. <laughs> eight, nine, 10 years old, raises her hand to volunteer and mm-hmm. I bring her up and I go, and I have the microphone I'm going back and forth between myself and her. And what is your name? And she, um, and she's a beautiful little girl and I, I wasn't sure her ethnicity. And, and she says, um, my name's Sawa. Well, I instantly, it clicked with me. I went to school with a woman named Sawa, a beautiful girl that was from Jordan or Lebanon. I can't remember exactly where. And so okay. I, I would always now still to this day, understand that Salwa is a name. S-A-L-W-A is a name from that region. And I, I, I that's what I asked the girl. I said, I, I said, Oh my goodness. What a, a, a name. I, I know somebody I went to school with a Salwa. Now is that Lebanese or is that from Jordan? What is the heritage? And she looks like deer in the headlights. And then somebody, of course, you know, I'm in the South, and somebody from the back says, her name's Sarah. She can't say her R's. And in that moment, what happened to your heart? Thank, it's on the floor. (laughs) Heart on the floor. Now, why would I tell you that unless I'm a sociopath or it's true? It's true. It's, well, here is why we know it's true. Carter and I love to tell jokes. Mm -hmm. We love to set people up with stories. I think, though, that a police officer could come alongside you and tell you the reasons why he knows what you're sharing is factual. Mm-hmm. One of them being there are so many details. There's a lot of details. That's very that's a very good point, Rochelle. And every single time that you have shared this story, which is more than once with myself, 
The story has never changed. There you go. So it stays the same. It's in line with what you've shared in the past. It's detailed. And like you said, it also doesn't paint yourself in a positive light. It kind of makes you look a little bit the fool. The disciples, there's two keys with the disciples and the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They wouldn't have shared embarrassing things about themselves because Peter was, you know, obviously the, the main example. But you have all of them except for John fleeing. You have uh, John involved with the uh, Mount of Transfiguration where they're like, well, of course, that's Peter kind of blurting it out. Let's build a, a, a symbol to you and to Elijah. And to you have all these embarrassing things that they're not going to write if it's not true. And they're going to go on and die for. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're going to go get stoned and crucified upside down and all sorts. I mean, fed to the lions and all sorts of stuff for a thing they made up. No way. And they no way. ran. I mean, you think about that. What took place between the night in the Garden of Gethsemane when mm-hmm. Jesus was arrested and they ran? One of them naked mm-hmm. ran because he was like wearing his pajamas or something, his little nighty shirt. Yeah, and they ripped it off of him. Took it right off because he was so freaked out and he didn't care. He ran buck naked through the Garden of Gethsemane. And what transpires between that night and then the day of, of Pentecost, I mean, like, you think about the boldness, even after they see Jesus, mm-hmm. they're still hiding behind closed doors. Like yep. Jesus walks into the building after he's resurrected. The door isn't open. He walks through the walls. He's there in the room with them. So they're still behind locked doors, even after they see that he's there. Yeah. Yeah. So there's this incredible moment where the Holy Spirit comes down. All of a sudden they are emboldened. And that's when you're like, OK, it just got real. Yeah, that's exactly right. And you have um, I heard one pastor say a probable conversation it's not specifically mentioned but you could see where a conversation would take place that uh they can't go to the tomb jesus dies on a friday they can't go to the tomb on a saturday because it's a sabbath Sabbath. so then the the women want to go and do the spices and and do the proper thing with the body uh, on a sunday and nobody who's going to roll the the uh stone away a probable conversation between maybe a couple of them or peter you want to go with us and then all the guys choose not to go to the two. I mean, it's just embarrassing thing after embarrassing thing. And so you have to ask yourself, why would somebody make this up, die for it, and write embarrassing things about themselves? And then to the second point of this is, is the women aspect. And that's what was brought up in Sunday school. Why? What is significant about the women being the only ones there at the tomb? And, and you know, in the, the very first part of it. And it's because culturally— no, I mean, in court, and I and I mean as an attitude in the culture, that women aren't to be believed, mm. that they're just not, that it's simply they are going there and they are now the only witnesses, for example, for Mark's gospel, the only witnesses that he has. And so he will choose to write it down because it's true. Mm. But if you're making it up, you would write down a man's name or a group of men's name and then say, see, see, yeah, let's do that. But it's simply not true. So it begs the question, why would he write women? Well, because it's true and they're the only ones that went. It's fascinating. You just, you look through all of the things that support the truths in scripture, like even beyond, just if if perhaps you stumbled upon this podcast and you're like, okay, guys, and you have a reason as to why all of what we're saying 
is still made up. You're convinced. Mm-hmm. We have talked about it's just going to have to come down to a, a revelation uh, in terms of like a Holy Spirit relationship event where you just have an understanding. Now, I just know that I know um, because I feel like there is so much factual support. There's a mm-hmm. lot of naysayers out there that are going to give you um, different tools to help convince you why scripture is inaccurate, but it is still held today as the most reliable ancient source of history, historical history ever mm-hmm. than any other document predating Homer. It's, it's pretty impressive. And we give more, I guess we're like, Oh, well, Homer and the Odyssey. I like I said, how in the world are we giving this more attention in our history books than the Bible? And I think it's because mm-hmm. it's threatening. Yeah. When you think about, oh, I have to be accountable now to a God, a deity who has created me. Nobody wants to be accountable. They want to do their own thing. So ask yourself when you know that a baby that is going to come to save the world has been prophesied, some would argue uh, up from 70 prophecies in the Old Testament has been prophesied in every single one of those seen through by the one person of Jesus Christ, which I, the number is insurmountable. It's it's an astronomical figure of how one person, the odds of that one person fulfilling all of those prophetic words coming true. Right. I mean, I you don't need any more evidence well, than that. Well, you have naysayers that say, well, the disciples wrote all of it. But we've already covered they wrote embarrassing things about themselves and died for it. And then we also have manuscripts that predate them. Yes. Like manuscripts from before Jesus was even yes. born. Isaiah, centuries before Jesus was born. And I mean, not just the timeline of it, but when it was written, copies from the pre, the yes. negative century, yes. right? The first century was what Jesus lived in. The negative century, the B.C., that literally... Any scholar is going to look at, Christian or not, and go, this document is from this time period. The enemy is vying for your attention. Mm -hmm. And his desire is to twist what you perceive into being truth. But it's it's perversion. It's twisting of truth. It's not. So he wants you, just like anybody desires community, to feel accepted, to belong. And certainly I am not saying that Christianity is different in that regard because we absolutely invite community. It's the body of Christ. After Mm -hmm. all, that's what's so amazing about Jesus is that you have a place in him because of grace. But see, that's the same kind of thing the enemy wields, but different instead of freeing it in slaves. And then he casts a light on faith of Jesus and following Jesus as somehow being, uh, well, you too many rules to follow. Mm. And it's so weird because there's freedom in what God shares is law and our rules because he's like, you don't understand. When you understand where the boundaries are in place and why they are in place, which that comes with time, you will see the freedom the free range that yeah. you have that you do not have when you're caught up in addiction, when you're caught up in cult, when you're caught up in things that distract, take away, say you have to do this in order to become. Mm-hmm. Jesus said, all you mm-hmm. have to do is come. We we have uh, people that do a bad job. I, I've heard it called pop atheism. It's these very sly um, summaries. So could you imagine if I if I summarize World War II like this? 
yeah, the, you know, there was this crazy guy and there was just a uh, little bit that happened. And then America just came in and said, boom, done. Wow. I mean, that's like a terrible description, right? Because oh, yeah. it's it's kind of true, but there's a lot in the middle. You know, there's a, a big war. There's one guy. Uh, I don't want to use his name because I just don't want to. I don't want anybody looking him up because it just drives well, me nuts. But he's uh, an atheist that I genuinely think is very famous atheist. Genu- I genuinely think that God's not dead is about this guy. Mm-hmm. The, you know, the atheist professor at a college university. Oh, okay. Guy that knows a lot about the Bible, uh, but he summarizes it like this. Like one thing is Luke and Mark are completely opposite gospels. They don't support each other. In Luke, you have this Jesus character that is the, you know, the son of God and he's on the cross and he's saying, you'll be with me in paradise and blah, blah, blah. And then in Mark, you have him surprised that he's dying on a cross he doesn't say much. He just says that, uh, you know, let me, uh, they give him some water. They give him some, and he does this very sly summary pointing out that there's too many differences for it to be true. Mm. And all you got to do is, so basically what his summary is, in Luke, he's claiming to be the son of God, and in Mark, he's not. Mm. And all you got to do is go to a verse like Mark 9.31, and it says, because he was teaching his disciples, he said to them, The son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Mm. You see, if you look into a lot of these claims, you'll see, yeah, it doesn't hold water. It doesn't hold water. You know what? Speaking of water, you know, a couple of weeks weeks ago, we talked about symbolism and and how water plays a giant role throughout scripture. And another reason for me to just find that what the word of God says does is hold water, (laughs) Mm -hmm. living water. It really does. When you read from cover to cover and take it as a package deal, you start to see why symbolism is so important, why it's valued and why we can apply it to our lives and, and read scripture. Like, so it's not confusing kind of helps you navigate. Mm -hmm. Um, Cause you can tell me a zillion times uh, that I, while I'm in a different country here is your translator. But if I never turn on the translator, I'm still not going to know what people are saying in that country because I don't speak that language. Right. Some of that is like when I'm reading through the Bible. I like I don't understand this and I need a <laughs> I need help with translation. Yeah. And that is where I think d- going deeper will help you understand why. Yes, it does hold water. The actual God's word holds water. And so Ezekiel is the book that I've been going through and uh it's fascinating when the the Hebrew people have been exiled at this point. And in fact, the opening part of the book is Ezekiel is 30 years old. He was supposed to be a priest. Here he is sitting by the river. He's given this incredible vision. He's taken up from where he's at. Now, whether he's physically taken up, you know, I, I mentioned last week, we're not sure, but we know that he sees what's happening in Jerusalem. So he's in exile in Babylon, but he sees what's happening in Jerusalem which is yet to be taken by, taken over by Babylon. Um, He knows that through this vision, the Lord is removing his presence from the temple, which is just unheard of. It's a bit controversial. The people even like there are a certain amount of people that are like, I don't think we should be reading this. That doesn't seem to, that doesn't add up. Come on. But uh, Ezekiel is given this symbolic vision of God's presence leaving through the east gate and i'm like uh, why are there so many gates (laughs) Mm -hmm. there's a north gate an east gate um 
there's the the south gate, but the the west gate, that's where the the actual temple is kind of backed up against the wall, if you will. And the Holy of Holies, maybe you've heard about that. That's where the Ark of the Covenant is. It's the innermost part of this area. And now God's presence is not there anymore. And it's symbolically transitioned to, I mean, it's like they're hovering over the river in Babylon where Ezekiel is. So it's like, well, what does that even mean? Try to unpack that as a Jewish person. That's not, no, this is a foreign land. This is an unclean place, right? Mm -hmm. So we're given the image of kind of like a giant Ark of the Covenant with these four beings that are winged creatures. They have two sets of wings, got four different heads, crazy. And this presence of God is now floating above them, which looks like a giant Ark of the Covenant because the Ark, you may remember, is this gold box, has two cherubim, angel-like figures that are, they've got their wings kind of poured over the, the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat of this golden box. And now I'm seeing an actual floating throne with four angels underneath it. And there on, t- on top of it is the presence of God, this fiery looking image. Are you following me so far or is it going to confuse This is what he's seeing in either a vision or whatever. Yeah. And this is where he sees the angel figures and then above them mm-hmm. is this throne. Yes. And it looks like a major version of what's supposed to be in Jerusalem behind temple walls. Like nobody gets in with the Holy of Holies unless you're a priest. Mm -hmm. So for Ezekiel, as a would-be priest, seeing something that would have maybe taken place later in his future, I don't know what status of priest he would have been or anything, and I don't want to assume that I know. This was something that that would be deeply disturbing to a good Jewish person because that's what I know. And even in exile, that's what I know. He's still with us in Jerusalem, right? He's still with us. And I think it's like, well, I feel like I, in Ezekiel's shoes, would have been maybe confused, a little bit scared, but also wouldn't there be comfort somewhere in that because he's still with me, even in exile. And that was what God was like. I'm going to be with you in this, in the midst of exile. I'm with you. But I'm outside the walls now of Jerusalem. And I've left through the East Gate, which is the main entrance, the one that would face the temple. And I'm gone because they have been doing all this stuff. And he shows Ezekiel, even though he's not in Jerusalem, he's in Babylon. He shows him what's taking place inside the temple walls, which is slander, idolatry. It's not good. The leaders are corrupt. Murder of innocence. I was just horrible. And so God says, no more. I'm gone. Well, chapters later, Ezekiel is given the blueprints by a man of God. Uh, he, he's taken around what appears to look like the temple back in Jerusalem, Mount Zion. Here's where we, and he tells them, this is how we're getting, now it's a different structure than what Solomon created. It's a little bit different, uh, less glorious even, but that might've also stirred up some controversy. Wait, what? Of course, now we look at it from the outside in. Knowing what we know through Jesus Christ, we look back on the Old Testament and say, oh, I see what happened. Mm -hmm. This makes sense to me. Uh, Ezekiel is told that after this new temple is built, he's shown the presence of God returning through that east gate where it had once left. Putting himself back in the temple where I will never leave you. And now I want you to shut the east gate and it's never to be used. Never. So whenever people apparently were to go into the temple, they, they use the other two entrances. That one's always symbolically closed. 
such heavy symbolism. I have no idea how far that stretches. I have to do. I have to continue to do some research, but I just found that fascinating. Um, that it all means something, and I don't want to miss those connections. Like I read that at the very beginning of the book, and now we're like forty chapters or so in, and I'm reading that and see. Oh, that connects for me. So that one small connection in a very large book, which obviously to people who know the Old Testament, who revere Hebrew culture, who perhaps are Judeo-Christian or Jewish, they don't see Jesus as the Messiah. That would be very knowledgeable. And they probably sit me down and tell me all of the reasons why. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I, I once the once God's presence comes into my life, I think that's so symbolic. Like I, I only I want him to stay there. You know, and mm-hmm, it's, let mm-hmm. that be a symbol. I, I'm not going anywhere. I came back in the way I, I went out. And I want you to shut the doors because I'm staying. Yeah. And we see the veil torn in two, as we've shared before, after Jesus's death on the cross. And the symbolism of not that he has left, per se, but that it is now open to all. And that one day, a new Jerusalem, a new heaven, a new earth. We read about these things in Revelation Um, that this water that is coming out of the temple is for all nations. He is with us. He is not going anywhere. We have, he's locked and loaded. That's such a callous way of saying it, but he's there. Mm -hmm. He's with you. And I don't want him going anywhere. And I feel like you shut the door because I, I symbolically, I left through that entrance. I'm back and I'm not going any, shut it. I'm here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for your time. I do have a question for you. Okay. Uh, but thank you for your time. Again, hopeondemand.com. There's so much, uh, so much, so many resources there, hopeondemand.com. All right. So your mom has four kids and their names are North, West, South. And what's the fourth one's name? No, I don't want to do this. Come I'm going gonna, gonna to say it wrong. Their names are North, West, South. And, and what's the last one's name? It's East. You're, again, your mom has four kids, and their names are North Rochelle. <laughs> oh! That's exactly right. Oh, well, wait a second. My mom only has two kids. <laughs> it's a riddle. It's a riddle and a joke. <laughs>